Welcome to Dig This, a podcast about using archaeology, heritage, and business to do some good in this world. I'm Jenny. And I'm Amanda. Join us in a guest or two as we reevaluate and decolonize our work, our relationships, and our values. We're recording from the unceded territory of the Shimshan Nation, the Kitsilis people in Terrace, BC and also recording from Bowser, BC. In the beautiful unceded territory of the Qualicum First Nation. This is our gratitude season where we're showcasing and celebrating and talking with and about our team members. Hi, Susie. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jenny. Thanks for having me. Are you in a recording studio at your home? I am coming to you from a blanket fort inside my house. (laughs) You've got a young family, so I suspect you've got tons of blanket fort making materials. Oh, yeah. We're uh, we're in good practice. We do lots of blanket forts around here. I suspect um, when he gets home from school today that he'll be loving this setup. Oh, yeah. You should totally dress it up. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to introduce everyone to you. So we have Susie Carruthers, who is one of our archaeologists who's been on our team the longest, based out of our terrace office. You just celebrated your knife anniversary, your five-year anniversary. I did. I did. And it's pretty crazy to think about, because when I started with Clienza, it was a really kind of like entrenched group of people and I was the baby uh, for and the first the first kind of newy in a long time so yeah the fact yeah. that I just celebrated my five years is like pretty nuts absolutely it's amazing we're grateful to have you it's so nice to be able to have this um, season on the podcast where we can celebrate team members which is what we're doing so it's great to have you on I wonder if you would be able to um, give a quick territorial acknowledgement. Technically Kitsum Kalum, but broader Shimshen, and we are just on the border of Niska as well. But technically I'm 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 in Kitsum Kalum territory. And a lovely territory. Oh, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So Today, we wanted to talk about repositories, which is a big part of what archaeologists deal with, but it's not always celebrated. So it's where material goes after the project is finished. And that's kind of a big a big topic, the idea of where material goes, because it can be determined by what the material is, where it's found, all of those things. So I, w- I want to talk about that because you've kind of become like one of our resident experts on this. And so I wonder if you could speak a bit to kind of your origin story in archaeology and then kind of how this emerged as a topic of interest for you. Yeah, well, it was... um like I had completed my schooling. I'm a grad SFU graduate. I had completed my schooling um, and took a bit of a hiatus. It was, we were in a a weird political year um, and we were switching from liberal to a conservative government. They just handle things differently. And so I took a bit of a hiatus um, and I went and worked at my local museum, just kind of a, um, 
entry level position that evolved a little bit, but I was helping them with digitizing their collections. I was doing some um, exhibit setup, but mostly I was just kind of sitting at the front desk talking to people as they come in. Um, and you were still down south at this point, right? Just to yeah, that was, orient that was, where I was still in the lower mainland. I, uh, I I only moved up to Terrace up north here. Well, I guess it's just central, but up north um, <laughs> the, far, the far north of terrace people north. in the actual north are going mm -mm, not the north yeah <laughs> so i uh, moved up to terrace in like 2019 um with clienza actually they sponsored me to come up here and then i decided to stay forever um so i i had a bit of experience working um with a museum but it was kind of at a lower level kind of entry level positions uh so i didn't really get to see all of the like the politics and the nitty-gritty so that's how i kind of got my um introduction into museums um like actually working in them rather than just like being a visitor of them and then I got back into archaeology and it was all kind of field work and digging holes and doing that sort of thing. But then when I, when I did come up to Terrace with Clienza, there was just a need, a need for somebody to be the go-to person, to be the one with the information or at least the one with all like the good links if you didn't have the information like know where to go and ask for it um and we had a couple of projects and a couple like higher profile ones too um where the collections um were just kind of in limbo they were in stasis for whatever reason like permitting or arc branch requirements had changed or they had been delivered to us uh two years after a project ended as sort of a surprise uh, delivery, like there was just a bunch of different things going on with our collections and they needed they needed to be sorted out. So um, Kay, our our head down in Vancouver, our senior archaeology manager, Kay Jollymore, wonderful lady, um, wonderful lady. Oh, in so many more ways than I'm sure I even know. But <laughs> she has mentored me so much um, in this kind of thing because she sort of had the same similar situation going on down in the South and just wanting to do what's best and what's right by um, the items or the belongings, um, the stories and, and, and the information. And she needed somebody up in the north. And so I was kind of, I don't know if it was for lack of a better option or my own um, interest in the subject, but I was I was it. You stepped up for it. It's, and it, it takes a, a certain person who's very like detail oriented to take that on. It's not for everyone. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think part of the reason um, I did step up, well, like there was there was a need for it as well, but we've had some new kind of legislation roll out mm in the last few years that um, with the United Nations Declaration, Rights of Indigenous People, uh, and then DRIPA, the BC application of that, and, and what that looks like in terms of reconciliation and what that looks mm. like in terms of reconciliation in our fields and adjacent fields like the museums. It's kind of interesting historically when you bring in the idea of legislation because the Royal BC Museum in Victoria is historically, you know, in the mid 20th century where archaeological materials would be sent. So when there would be an archaeological project, 
the repository, if the material made it to a repository, the repository was assumed to be the Royal BC Museum in Victoria. And they've, they amassed this huge collection of materials. And as their repository program under cultural resource management became a little bit more modern and different personalities came into the museum, our Heritage Conservation Act was changed, we would submit additional materials such as field notes and photographs and things like that. But like way back in the day, which is a place that we sent physical things and they would languish in the basement without any context or any information and not very useful to other researchers at all. So that's kind of where we were at. Um, and then uh, we have an obligation though, of course, as archeologists, when we're doing our process of archeology, span it's destructive. As soon as we put that shovel in the ground, it's destructive. So the material that we retrieve from these sites the conservation of that material, the documentation of that material is so critical because it's the only record of the site. And that's somewhere that I think a lot of firms and including us at times have fallen down because we're struggling with the volume of material and we're struggling with um, the requests to get this stuff out the door. And it can be a real challenge, not an excuse, but it's it's a reality that, that firms struggle with. And so... I think you were mentioning how the legislation has really informed though more recent changes in how we approach this repository topic. I don't know if you wanted to speak to that a bit. Sure. Um, yeah. So just kind of recently, I mean, uh, in, in the past, it was um, on our end sort of directed by uh, the Heritage Conservation Act. And on the museum end, it was the BC Museum Act, which was actually developed in kind of tandem with um, the Royal BC Museum down in Vinc or down in Victoria, pardon me. Uh, but more recently, uh, we've had the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, um, and then BC's application of that um, with DRIPA. Uh, which was the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act. Um, so provincially, that's what we deal with. But there's the the themes in that are like um, the the right. Um, sorry, off the cuff here are are the the right to self governance, right? And then there's the rights and titles of Indigenous people. There's just a broad like kind of catch-all of like ending racism as well um, and then there's the social cultural and economic well-being um, and so archaeology kind of touches in on all, all of, of those, those things as well so does the museum um, and repository side of things as well so I mean just yeah. from a cultural perspective and a perspective of what the information that we are acquiring as a discipline um, means in terms of like rights and title for indigenous people, uh, the self or the right to self-governance, like who gets to choose where goes what and what is the appropriate storage um, or, you know, not storage method of, of particular cultural artifacts, all that sort of thing. We still have a lot of like pretty deeply like antiquarian and colonial roots in like the general structure of our museum and repository uh, framework. And, and in our discipline as well, you'll hear the buzzword of like de decolonializing has become uh, 
yeah, huge, huge and, huge and necessary in our discipline as well as in the the repository discipline, the museology side. Yeah, and the archaeology and, and museology, the developments in both of them have kind of developed like alongside each other as well. So like as we got indigenous archaeology, which is archaeology with, for, and by indigenous people, alongside yeah. the emergence of that, we get the emergence of indigenous museology. And it's basically, you know, those are our materials and we get to define how they're stored, if they're stored, um, how they're displayed, if they're displayed, what they're displayed with. Who has um, access to that information. Who has access to that information and so on. And so, you know, it's interesting to look at things from a museum perspective because the museum side has been grappling with the same challenges that we're grappling with in archaeology, which is an inherited system of, of racism. Um, that's been enshrined within our legislation, right? And so now we're looking at those changes, as you mentioned, through like UNDRIP and DRIPA, for example. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So so what's some changes that's come out of museology based upon those? I'm thinking back, like one of the first times that I heard of application of um, Indigenous museology or decolonizing perspectives in museums. And I'm, I'm not well versed in museums at all. I mean, I love a good museum, but I do not know like the behind the scenes workings in museums. We would talk to my friend, Sarah Carlock about that. She's the expert in museums. Um, but I remember the first thing, one of the first examples I heard about uh, was the the Museum of Anthropology at the University of BC, and they were doing a huge revamp on their collection. I don't know if you remember that, but they basically, they worked with um, the nation, primarily Musqueam Nation, although they also had a lot of material from a lot of other nations there, and they worked to have a lot, and they worked on not only repatriating certain materials, but changing um, the access piece, which was so fascinating as a topic in itself. So it increased public access in some ways, and that it had those like open storage drawers. Did you ever see those? I like those a lot. They're very, so very great. Right. Yeah. So the materials, it's preserved, it's conserved, it's all in its own little drawer, but you can, as a member of the public, you can open the drawer and see all the materials. So it's not all on immediate display, but on the other hand, a lot of stuff that should never have been on display was removed and was made only accessible for communities. Right. And so that was kind of a big deal as well. Yeah. So, well, LOA did a big revamp like that. The Laboratory of, of Arche- Laboratory of Archaeology at UBC. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, well, the, the RBCM is very much doing a similar thing. Like, they, there's been a lot shaken down at the RBCM. Um, there, there's been some scandals and there's oh, been... Yeah massive restructuring there was some um issues around that kind of like indoctrinated um racism that had come out somewhat recently and so there was a big shakedown of some of the like long-standing staff as Mm -hmm. which accompanied also by just like the general and natural kind of progression of that um the older kind of musy generation um the boomers or whatever aging out of the professional sphere and being taken over by this kind of younger, um, more informed uh, body of people who 
have some really great ideas and who have been brought up in this more recent um, and inclusive sort of mind frame to which this recent legislation applies most directly, I think, honestly. Um, yeah, so they, they've, they've gone a whole through a bunch of like restaffing stuff, but they also just got like $800 million, which is huge. So they are restructuring like physically, they're restructuring like in their kind of like hierarchy. There, there, there's a lot going on through the RBCM. And the Royal BC Museum has been used as kind of the cornerstone um, for so many other smaller um, or or different like other repositories throughout the province that I'm mm-hmm. so interested to see how that um, affects kind of everybody as as those changes take place. Uh, and I think they are projecting right now to be completed that in 2030. It's Whether quite that- a few quite a yeah. few years. So so it is going to be developing a lot um in the next few years, but I'm super interested. I've kind of been following um there's a couple of professional associations. There's the BC Repository Association that I think was mostly like archaeologists trying to like get down with the the museum, the museologists. And then there's the BC the BC Museum um association as well. So those two things kind of um centrifuge around one another but uh yeah no it's it's just been it's it's going to be interesting to see how it all shakes down mm-hmm. um and i think the thing that i'm most interested to see is uh the development like as as we get comfortable in this new legislation and we're settling into it and seeing what it actually means um, off of paper and in real life, I think we're going to be seeing a lot more communities um, looking to house their own items. That's something that a theme that I've noticed more and more and more is Mm -hmm. that people want their items, their belonging, their history to stay close to home. For many years, that was one of the first inklings that we saw of community dissatisfaction with the Royal BC Museum as a central repository, just that it was so far from home. So not commenting on the quality of conservation, not not, not talking about any of, of that. I can't, I can't speak to that. But, you know, one of the early, um, you know, bottom up requests for change in this whole procedure of conservation was community saying why are we sending it to victoria we're in prince george or we're in wherever it is and there is no access to those materials and there are belongings we should be able to access them and so then we started to see you know people requesting that materials go to kissan in hazelton or the Museum of Northern BC in Prince Rupert. And then in addition to that, I'm thinking back to a project we worked on in 2012, um, the Cedarvale project, uh, east of Terrace, near Mm -hmm. Kilonga in Gitsan territory. And there there were some community members that wanted the materials to go to the Museum of Northern BC and other community members who wanted to make their own museum right on the land but that's so challenging because where's the funding for that right where is the funding for that exactly and so that's a challenge got it (laughs) 800 million dollars the funding (laughs) yeah exactly and so it's interesting 
you know, I wonder where do you think that's heading in terms of decentralization of repository? Yeah, I've I've heard just working and like we we, we get to work pretty broadly. I mean, I'm pretty firmly um in this sort of central to northern BC territory now, I'm a little bit removed from the the lower mainland and down south, uh, or like the you know the most direct kind of access to the RBCM and its influence. Um, and I definitely see I see a lot of communities with the same desire to have their own repository in-house. Um, I see a lot of communities doing the same thing with their heritage management um, in general, and the repository is just sort of like a fraction of that. I see communities sort of reaching out to the knowledge base that is the professional world um, of archaeology and museology, but sort of applying it in something that's a little bit closer to home and a little bit more attainable for, mm-hmm. for the people to whom it probably truly matters the most, uh, which I think is really beautiful. Museums um, all over, like, you know, from Canada, BC, but also abroad over in Europe, um, that like now that this whole like repatriation thing has been going on for quite some time and there's been success in it, that these big museums and international museums now kind of have a template for how that looks. So different to what I had you know, learned in school or experienced myself working in a museum 15 years ago. A bunch of things are coming to mind as as you're talking about this. And I'm thinking about you, we have some excellent models, as you say, internationally elsewhere, you know, I'm thinking, even here in Canada, uh, back east, there's been some great examples, but also the Prince of Wales Northern Heritage Centre and Yellowknife uh, has long worked closely with community, um, much earlier than as far as I know, we were in BC, and that has to do with the population base and like more integration of populations as well. Um, I'm also thinking like casting my mind back to the beginning of archaeology as a discipline and stuff and 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 folks like Flinders Petrie, who worked in the southeast of England and who was part of the movement of archaeologists that were not necessarily proud of everything that came out of that early 20th century phase of archaeology. But he had this field museum that was set up Um, which showcased, you know, systematic data recovery or early examples of that. And they have now, even as one of the earliest archaeology museums, they've kind of been leading the way in things like repatriation and modernization. And so I find that super interesting that even the oldest models um, can be improved upon and can be more reflective. And, and, And that's such a wonderful thing about places like museums is that they reflect they should reflect the values of the society that they are showcasing to, I feel, right? Instead of enshrining um, past ideals that just do not fit into current values as well. Or else you, the museums won't have people visiting them if, they, if people can't see their values reflected there. Absolutely. And, and speaking, speaking to that, um, Jenny, just in terms of like the difference in the different ways and understanding of like, what is, what is care? What, what is conservation? All this sort of thing. I find um, like the Western sort of ideal and that can be like for the aging of anything, the aging of people too. People kind of fight that aging process. Um, You know, whether it's your gray hairs or the degradation. My gray hairs? My my literal gray hairs? 
My, mine too. This was that was not <laughs> our gray hairs. Our collective um, gray hairs. Yeah, collectively. Uh it's counts as wisdom, right? That's right. Um yeah, no, so that that idea of of conservation and preservation and not allowing things to change and not allowing things to decay, it's kind of very deeply entrenched as i'm sure uh anybody would understand and like that's the entire kind of purpose of a museum but when we talk to um first nations and indigenous communities that we work with that is not necessarily like the culturally appropriate um way to care for an item a lot of times that decay and degradation and returning back is is the proper care for an item and it's you know a way of ensuring like the transference of knowledge and all this sort of thing like if a you know a, a carved or like a like a totem pole or a post or something uh will last maybe a lifetime or two and then it decays and a new one needs to be replaced that it's it's cyclical um it is in fact the proper care for these items as determined by the people who created them um and, and it also it, it's sort of the the catalyst of like okay well now somebody else needs to carve this and it's it's an indicator for a transference of knowledge as well so i i don't know if that um sanitary kind of museum the the ideology behind it but then also the practice as well there's we got a long way to go before we reach um you know the the, the things that are outlined in in this new legislation and that are coming to be expected um by the practicers and the people who we do our practice for and, and you know these changes in legislation i think as you're you're noting are countering some very ingrained ideas which is that cultural heritage is human heritage and it needs to be put under glass for everyone to see and enjoy now of course as archaeologists we recognize that that knowledge transfer that handing down of information is so critical and so how can we still achieve that without this, I think you said it very well, the sanitized approach? So, how, you know, what does a process look like that's equitable um, in terms of providing fair access to shared cultural heritage while also protecting the rights of descendant communities over their belonging? So how do we learn about these communities if we don't have their stuff under glass? Right. I don't know. <laughs> We're well, I guess we could ask him. <laughs> yeah, right. We should ask. That's a, what a novel idea. You know, I'm thinking about something that was really transformative for me on this topic was when I was still living in Vancouver and we were working very closely with the Musqueam. And um, that was around the time that this excellent, uh, what would I even call it? It was an installation at the Museum of Vancouver, but it was also in community and it was called Cessnam, the city before the city. Mm. And so Cessnam was one of the big Musqueam settlements, the city upon which part of Vancouver was built upon. Um, very well known site, very important site. And what was transformative for me were when this installation at the Museum of Vancouver and then, as I said, in community was created my brain 
was trained to think that I was going to be walking into a room with like little showcases, little glass boxes and being like, isn't this a pretty artifact without any understanding of what it was, how it was used. Artifact, even the terminology. Exactly. Even the terminology artifact. Exactly. So this is what I was thinking going in. And instead I went in and it was this really interesting space that wasn't necessarily designed for you to move through, but like to stay and have a listen. And one part of it in particular resonated with me where it was oral histories told by community members around a kitchen table. And there was a kitchen table. And then there was the sound playing of elders talking. And so it became then this immersive story where folks were talking about their belongings. And it turns out I didn't actually need to go and dig up their material or any of that in order to understand the richness of what they were talking about, like what it was like to live on the banks of the Fraser River 80 years ago, you know, how folks would go and get food. Yes, it's very cool to see a fish hook. Absolutely. It's so cool. That's great. But it's even cooler to hear the people who used it and made it talk about it. I agree. Yeah, I agree. totally, totally transformative. And so that would be, I guess, a counter to that uh, sanitized approach as well. So we talked about how repositories are still a critical part of cultural resource management in BC. We've talked about how communities are voicing concern for their belongings being far from home. So they are playing a huge role in these changes, these bottom-up changes um, and sovereignty over their materials. I wonder if you could speak to, based upon your experience, how you think archeologists can improve this process from a professional standpoint, as opposed to like a community standpoint. From an archeologist's kind of standpoint and um, somebody who like, the, the museum sphere and the archaeology sphere, they have their whole own disciplines going on and then they kind of like touch in the middle um, or they should oh, like be a, Like a Venn diagram. I love a Venn diagram, Susie. A Venn diagram. So mm. they're... So, so they're doing their their own things, but there is a, a level of interaction and interface there. Um, and now a lot of the times our discipline is kind of the... I don't want to say gatekeeper because it sounds sort of yucky, but like the facilitator, I suppose, mm. of that interaction of like how the stuff gets from community or from a project or whatever into the museum. Um, so we, we're, we're, we're facilitating that process, I suppose. But I think... Um, in, in more recent years, we've had some really good uh, exchanges happening through our provincial professional associations. Uh, we've had the the lovely Genevieve of the Royal Dr. BC. Dr. Genevieve Hill. Dr. Genevieve Hill um, mm -hmm. of the Royal BC Museum, uh, who's doing amazing things over there. But she has come and done like speaker kind of set series at um, our sort of annual general meetings and communities of practice and things uh, and I think that is so key and so important is mm -hmm. like we have we have we both have different responsibilities towards the cultural heritage of Indigenous and others in in BC and Canada more broadly. But we, we need to take advantage of those opportunities to cross over into each other's realms a little bit. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I and don't they know. Are, they I, have been very separate for so long. They have right? been. Even, even the way I introduced the topic in my experience, I kind of spoke about them as separate things, but they're absolutely connected. They're absolutely connected. And so I don't know if it's through the professional association or if it needs to be through some sort of like provincial kind of like policy or legislation or whatever that more (laughs) firmly connects the two things. It's interesting right now we're undergoing the process that started in 2007 of the Heritage Conservation Act Transformation Project. And so this is drawing together all sorts of interest groups and descendant communities who Um, have an interest in how heritage is managed, whether it's a professional um, interest, an economic interest, you know, lots of different interests. And, and I, I participated in one of the discussions, I don't think the intersection of our heritage legislation and museums came up, but I don't feel confident because I don't know that I was listening for it. Because in my brain, I need to get away from the idea that they're they're kind of have like a little wall between them, you know, but I wonder because our Heritage Conservation Act, the HCA, it's the one that dictates, you know, um, I don't know, it, it doesn't dictate the repository guidelines. I mean, the the repositories themselves, they have we have provincial guidelines Um very, quite strict now. They weren't always that strict. And I think that's good that they're stricter now. Mm-hmm. Um, but our Heritage Conservation Act, I'm trying to think about how it meaningfully intersects with that other than it asks us to name a repository. But I think that's the only place in our permits that yeah. really And it's that. interesting because the consultation piece in our discipline is so strong that we cannot do what we do without it. It is considered yeah. unethical. It is considered and improper. You mean, so just to clarify, and you mean consultation? With consultation with, with community, with Indigenous people, with First Nations people mm-hmm. um, is what I mean by that consultation mm-hmm. piece. And not just consultation in terms of informant, but in consultation in terms of development as well, like that early and often and meaningful consultation. And it's, yeah, it's it's interesting that we take such a hard stance on that in our dis- discipline professionally, or, you know, most archaeologists do. I think if you're probably practicing within the modern sphere of archaeology, you yeah. do anyways. Um, but that we don't, we don't have that same requirement or need or, you know, um, whatever for to, to have consultation with community about where the stuff is going afterwards. Right. And, a lot, and a lot of the times just to kind of tick a box and to fill a placeholder will be like RBCM because that right. is the provincially you know, I don't know if mandated is the right word, but the provincially accepted. It's and like the that default. Part. It's like the it's default, default one. It's absolutely. Yeah. So they check the box. RBCM is the default museum. Um, and then I've had it on several occasions come back, especially after like these long multi-year projects or whatever. And um, people are saying, community is saying that that's not what they want after all. And then you, it's as simple as going and sending a note to the archaeology branch and updating your permit, doing a little permit amendment. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like that piece deserves so much more um, than just a box. And like, mm-hmm. it's literally like it's two lines in our right. permit application of like, 
Right. Yeah. And, and, and of course you get, you have to get the repository confirmation um, as you do right in advance and all that. But um, yeah, it's, it's becoming more known now and known beyond the professional sphere, like known with the communities that we're working with that they have options to keep their stuff closer to home. Or like if they have an alternative, they can, they can declare that, but it's still, being kind of gatekept by what is considered an appropriate repository and who determines those parameters. Um, yeah. And the other interesting thing, this is all fascinating to me. <laughs> I need to talk with you more about this stuff. But the other th fascinating thing to me is that some of the most fragile types of sites, you know, the example of waterlogged organic materials, wet sites, so, so fragile, so rare, um, and need such care, those which I'm, you know, we know that communities want to keep close so they can learn from them. They're very finite resources. We don't have many examples of them, but oftentimes local communities don't have the proper materials to take care of these delicate sites sites, right? They don't have the holding tanks and the polyethylene glycol or or folks who are trained in it or who can go and change the water every day. Right. We, we, know, we know this firsthand. And so then those very fragile materials, which really, you know, communities really want to keep close, they're being shipped even farther away, um, yeah. potentially, to where there are facilities that can take best care of them. So what we have then here is a bit of a conundrum. We have, we have a so-called resource that is governed by the province, right? The province governs how materials are taken care of on provincial lands. They govern how they're taken care of, but they don't provide the funding to ensure that care happens. And so then where is that Or they do, but it's very from? specifically appointed. Or it's very specifically appointed. And so then it falls upon the individual archaeologist, as you said, to be the conduit or, you know, the person who's in charge of that being that go-between, um, to then perhaps talk to the client and say, can you pay for this? Or in some case, talk to the nations and say, yes, well, the province has deemed this to be an important resource. You have deemed this to be an important resource, but it's hugely expensive uh, to preserve it. So it's either cough up the money or it'll start falling apart. There will be no conservation and, and this item, this belonging will cease to exist. So how do we canter? How do we canter that, Susie? Susie, solve this problem for us. <laughs> I do not have all of the answers. Same here. Me no, neither. No, I certainly don't. But I think more more interface um, between archaeologists and museologists, museums, um, or whatever other repository is deemed necessary. So if it's a community repository being run in community by community members for community, um, such as the case as the Kassan um, cultural, cultural <laughs> village in Hazleton and Gitsan territory, they're, they, if you haven't been and if you're ever in the neighborhood it is such a treat <clears throat> to go to um oh, good but yeah like so getting so so for myself um i found that just like calling up these smaller repositories and having a chat and having that meaningful consultation piece with them um in advance of needing them which is key 
which is key, right? Uh, and knowing the expectations around that, knowing the people's um, like staff's ability to like deal with such things, offering support and assistance there where needed. Um, and, and yeah, just just being general, just being generally more present in our approach and our attendance with museums, I think is going to be beneficial. And, and most archaeologists should be considering that if they haven't already. Yeah, absolutely. And and learning uh, through asking um, preferences for communities, right? And, and, and so, you know, working closely with a community, understanding their preferences, understanding their, you know, goals for their community like are they trying to work towards their own repository or is that just not something that they're into and if that's what they're working towards can we help them somehow like project by project so that we have kind of not just dropping off a box of artifacts but like having the funds and the foresight to basically drop off almost little installations that are already you know, yeah. curated, and then the then the communities can use that much more easily. It's much more plug and play as being opposed to going back to the model where things go into the basement again. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So kind of bigger picture idea. No, um, obviously, this is a huge topic. We need to talk about it more. I'm learning about it. Um, I would love to learn more from you about it. You you are great to chat to about this and it's a new topic for me. Um, and so we should also put the call out if anyone's listening and our curators, our community-based archaeologists, you know, folks who have ideas for a transformed model of repositories would really love to hear from folks and we can we can continue to learn about it. Awesome. Well, thank you, Susie. What a lovely way to celebrate five years with us. I really appreciate it. Having yeah. You. Yeah, we don't no. get to chat enough, so we need to make more time. We don't. That was that was great. Thank you for listening to me. I had all, all these, it, Yeah, I had all these things in my head and I put pencil to paper this morning before this and like lickety split before I even knew it. I had like four pages of notes and I was like, oh my gosh, I have so much to say and so much of it is open-ended I don't know the questions it's not all factual based like so so much of it is like gray area or confusion or things that I do want to clear up so if there is anybody listening um who has yeah contributions or input reach out because I truly do want to know I want to be better and I think we all we all want to be better so yeah, and we we could have more of a conversation with folks as well maybe they could come on and, and chat with you and me that would be great. I would love that. Oh my gosh, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much, Susie. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye. Hey folks, thanks for listening to this episode of Dig This. If you have any questions or there's something you'd like us to dig into, reach out online. You can find and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Dig This Pod. If you dig us, leave us a review and tune in next week for a new episode.